All right. So we are in John chapter four. Uh, I'm sorry, John chapter three. And John chapter three, you guys know it well if you've been a Christian for very long. Such a beautiful passage uh, of evangelism of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in the night, telling him how he may inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, And then what seems to be a little bit of a commentary on that from John the Evangelist, who's writing this, on what exactly was Jesus getting at in this whole um, look to the sun and not perish but have everlasting life. And what does it look like to be born again? What does it look like to... um, have the fruits of righteousness and the light of life shining out of your light. So it's been about three weeks or so of John chapter 3, uh, and now we're just kind of moving along, and we're going to see uh, John the Baptist. It's a little bit of a, of a awkward transition, but uh, we're getting into it nonetheless, and trust that that was to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's verse 22. After these things, that's after all that John, uh, Jesus had to say to Nicodemus and what John had to say about what Jesus said. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptized. So after Jesus had this great evangelism experience with Nicodemus, he already was in Jerusalem. He already was in the region of Judea, but uh, he essentially stayed in that region. And there was an interesting ministry going on at this time for Jesus. It says that uh, his disciples were with him and, uh, and he was baptizing. Uh, that's interesting. I was writing in my notes like, oh man, I never really thought about Jesus doing baptizing, you know. And uh, the interesting thing is, is when you get to chapter 4, I think it's like verse 2, 1 and 2. Uh, verse 2 tells us that Jesus himself did not do the baptizing. Interesting because John the Baptist said that Jesus would be one who would come and he would be a baptizer, but he would baptize not with the element of water unto repentance, but he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He would baptize with the person and work of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of boldness to evangelize the lost, all right? So Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. A little more clarity from chapter 4. It's actually the disciples that are doing the baptisms. And an interesting little fact of history here comes into verse 23. When John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So crazy time in history that you don't really see much in the synoptic gospels that uh, John and Jesus both were doing ministry at the same time. And there was both baptizing happening in those ministries. Now, John the Baptist, we're given a location north of uh, about where Jesus was at the time, about 12 miles south of Bet Sheen. If you've ever been to Israel, one day we'll go. It's in my heart of hearts to take you guys to Israel. There are fountains there. In fact, Anon and Salim, it means fountains of water. So if your last name is the Baptist, where do you want to be hanging out at? <laughs> by the water, right? By springs of water. By the way, that is his last name. You can Wikipedia it, okay? Um, everything's true on Wikipedia. We all know that. But uh, 
So John just happens to be where there's water, all right? That's purposeful, I should say. And Jesus is south of John, and they're both doing ministry. And you would think that that would be an incredibly awesome thing and that everyone would be rejoicing that you've got Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and he's doing his radical work of redemption and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And you've got up north John the Baptist, the, the way maker for the Messiah, and he's still doing his thing. In fact, no doubt, still pointing people to Jesus, as it was in Jap- uh, John chapter 1. Um, you would think that that would be like, sweet, there's two churches now, right? There's, there's a church here, and there's a church here, and we've just got awesome ministry happening and people are coming and getting baptized, which means that they're repenting, which means they're ready for the kingdom of God. They're ready for the Messiah to come, but that's not really the case. And that's not really how it always happens either. All right. Sometimes a little bit of ego gets in the way. All right. Sometimes a little bit of competition spurs up within us and we're kind of a little bit like, well, what are they doing so close to us? You know, or They're taking all our peeps, you know, they're taking all of our people. And uh, it says that, uh, verse 24, John had not yet been thrown into prison. I know what you're thinking when you're reading this and John is baptizing people, you're thinking, how's he baptizing people if he's in prison? Well, it's not redundant to say he wasn't in prison. Okay, that's essentially what John is doing there. He's like, he's not in prison yet. Which is an interesting thing that John tells us because in Matthew chapter 3 at the end, going into chapter 4, we see that Jesus was um, baptized by John and then he went into the wilderness for 40 days. He was thrust into the spirit, uh, into the wilderness by the spirit for that period of temptation. And then he comes back from that 40 days of temptation, the fasting and all of that. And in Matthew's gospel, boom, right away, John the Baptist is thrown into prison. And it seems like there's no, um, there's no time together, what would you, you would call contemporaries, at the same time ministering. It seems like Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist is put in prison, and Jesus essentially takes over that ministry. But that's not what John tells us here. John says there was actually a decent amount of time where John was free, he was still doing his baptism ministry, calling people to repentance, uh, turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And he was pointing people to the Messiah who would be coming. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. That was happening for a good amount of time while Jesus remained in Judea. Some of you are excited about that. That's a neat thing to think about when you're thinking about the history of the ministry of Jesus on earth. Some of you are like, let's move on and see what the next verse has to say. All right, well, we will. Just calm down, okay? All right, so uh, as we get into verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification, okay? Uh, One, I think it was D.A. Carson said that in the original language, it's not Jews, but a Jew. So someone came along to the baptism service of John the Baptist and starts getting into some kind of argument about purification, cleanliness, how does baptism fit into cleanliness and whatnot. Josephus, the Jewish historian who would defect to the Romans after 70 AD, Josephus wrote that John uh, the Baptist's baptism was more about external cleanliness and didn't have much to do with the change of the heart. And that goes against what we know of baptism and the message of John the Baptist. So Josephus, the historian, missed the mark on his commentary on history there. 
for those of you that, once again, care about history and get excited about history uh, like me, right? Um, but there's a dispute, okay, uh, between John's disciples and a Jew or some Jews, something about purification. We don't really know what it was, but whatever it was, it begins to get people to consider a little bit of the ministry that was going on around him, and especially how Jesus is, is baptizing not too far away. Okay, and that began to consternate the disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, it's, it's a little bit weird, like, argument about purification, I'm ticked off at Jesus and his disciples. Okay, somehow the connections of the dots, just everyone just get default to getting mad at Jesus. Okay, that's what happened. All right, um, and so verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing And all are coming to him. So they're shook up. They're consternated. They're worried. Um, They don't even say Jesus' name, right? I mean, they heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Messiah. This is the Rescuer. This is the one who will bring salvation. This is the one that brings forgiveness of sins. His name is Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Look to him, and at that point, early on in chapter 1 of John, I think it was Andrew and Nathaniel, these were disciples of John, they went off after Jesus and followed Jesus. People began following Jesus, and now the disciples of John that stuck around with John, they're like, you know that guy? You know that guy that you pointed at? That one? Like, you know when you don't really like someone, you just struggle saying their name, right? And then they're like, say my name. And you're like, now I really don't want to say it, right? Uh, There's a little bit of toot going on with John's disciples here as they talk about, you know that guy, right? Uh, He was with you that one day. You were testifying about him, right? Hey, now he's over there baptizing people, which was our gig. Your last name's the Baptist, right? And all are coming to him. So there's a little bit of jealousy, right? The green-eyed monster, which, by the way, for all of us who are green-eyed, we don't appreciate very much, right? Man, there's something about jealousy, though, isn't there? Something good could be happening in another person's life, and because it's not happening to you, you're peeved about it. You're angry about it. You don't like that it's happening. You wish it were not happening. You will not rejoice with those who are rejoicing at this given moment. Because that green-eyed monster has got a hold of your Adam's apple, right? I can't rejoice with this person. Everyone's going to him. This has happened to me. This has happened to me in ministry. Um, there have been times where... Even my own disciples have been given opportunity and privileges and blessings and jobs and roles, even within the own organization I've been a part of, that were above me, that received more attention than me, that should have been mine. I was here first, I've been here longer, you know, I'm more dynamic or whatever, you know, it's just easy to just get on and your ego just like... You know, you begin to be bitter, and you complain, and you just don't text them back anymore. You don't look at them. You don't want to be around them. You're complaining to management about it. This has all happened to me. Even now, I've got some of my disciples 
Guys that I trained up, and they're at bigger churches, better opportunities, bigger paycheck, all sorts of things like that. And, I mean, it would be tempting to just be like, well, did nobody know that I'm older than them? <laughs> right? I was here first, so I think that's a thing, right? It's not a thing, okay? All right? Man, the Lord is looking for those to the, to the position that he has called them to. It's their niche. It's their spot. It's where he's called them. It's where these pla- he's placed them. And it may or may not be because there may be pride in your life and God resisting the proud and he's giving grace to the humble. That may be what's going on. In John the Baptist's case, it's the Messiah. The one that the world has been waiting for. All the prophets for millennia have been talking about this guy. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he was the one that was to prepare the way and make his path straight. So he comes on the scene. He points, John the Baptist points to that Messiah. Some of his guys follow him. Some stay behind. And now there's bitterness that, gosh, that guy that came after me, John the Baptist even said it that way in chapter 1, that one who came after me, whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to loose, he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to bring power and boldness and, and dynamite power, dynamic power into the lives of Christians. They can be forgiven of sin. Now they can live the life that they never had the strength to live in obedience to Jesus before, in proclamation of the gospel before, in serving one another in love, putting other people first, uh, being brave and courageous to preach. That's who he is. Go after him. And some of these disciples, they're just like, but we were here first. I was sitting in that seat first, right? I had the website domain name first. I'll charge you for it if you want to buy it, but JesusChrist.com, we bought that a long time ago in preparation of the Messiah, right? And, uh, and so, you know, there's, there's just that frustration, but John the Baptist has such a great perspective. He is not thrown off by this. Uh, He has just something real, real mature, wise, great perspective, perspective that we can note concerning our lives with Christ and our ministry roles that God's given us as Christians. Okay. And so John answers in verse 27 and says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John has this fantastic perspective that is a biblical perspective in Old Testament and New that any ministry of the Lord God of heaven, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, any ministry has been given by the initiative of heaven. It's by God's divine calling. It's by God's divine anointing. It's by God's divine betrothal and giving uh, that any one of us, man, woman, child, any sphere of ministry that we have, it's come from heaven. A man can receive nothing in this nature unless it's come down from um, above. We know this with Isaiah in chapter 6 and Jeremiah in his calling. The Corinthian church, Paul and Apollos, Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9, when Paul gets saved and and it's being told to Ananias of Damascus on the street called Straight that God had chosen Saul of Tarsus for this purpose. And so with every one of the prophets and every one of the apostles, 
Um, John the Baptist, we even know his story from Luke's gospel, that he had a calling on his life before birth, right? You know that. Even Jesus' ministry was from above. And so everything concerning ministry that we've received, it's, it's by divine initiative. And i got to say to you, there's some of you here that you might be thinking, I'm not in ministry, I'm not a minister, and i got to tell you, you're missing out on what God's call and heart is for every Christian that would ever be saved and born again. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, every one of us ought to be doing our share. 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about each one has been given a gift, and you ought to be using it right now. So if you're a Christian, this is your home church, and you don't know how to serve or how to use the gifts that God's given you, you've got to talk to myself or one of the elders. we got to pray with you, and we got to point you in that direction. Because every single believer has been given the calling on their life as a minister. What is my job as a pastor, as a teacher? It's not to do all the ministry, believe it or not. Okay? I get a fat check every month. It's incredible. It's weighing down my left pocket right now, actually. You know? But that, that, the purpose in Acts chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip y'all for the work of the ministry. To teach you how to be servants of the Lord and how to serve one another and how to edify the body of Christ. Okay? So, um, wonderful thing that John speaks to us here, that the initiative and the calling of ministry, it comes from heaven. No matter what the role, no matter what the sphere, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that the spiritual gifts that were given to serve in this capacity are distributed by the Holy Spirit to each one as he wills, okay? So to one you'll be given this gift, to another you'll be given that gift, to other you'll be given different different spheres of ministry. And so I've just had to come and grow and mature in this as I've watched guys just get bigger, you know, more notable uh, spheres of influence and ministry and you just, you know, these dynamic, great uh, ways that they're just going out into the nations and being seen. And, and the Lord's just like, that's you got to rejoice in that because that's the calling I have on that person's life. All right? And where God has you right now, you just need to rejoice in what God has called and created you to be because it is for such a time as this here and now, and it's by the initiative of heaven that you've been given this role in this sphere. And John knew that about himself. So every good thing that we have, no whether it's our ministries that God's given us or your financial prosperity, maybe your physical abilities or maybe your sense of humor, your ability to sing, your success, it all comes from heaven. Uh, We all know, and maybe your mind already went there, to James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, where uh, we just look at verse 17, actually, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Maybe you know that song, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Maranatha, right? Every good. Get your hips into it. Okay. All right. The good hand of God is the reason behind our success 
both in all of our prosperity in life and in our ministry. Now, when we start looking at our big buildings and our growing budgets and the increased attendance in our churches, that's not how we measure the success of a ministry. Matt Carter said, ministry drift happens when we lose this perspective. When ministry becomes focused on our success, our accomplishments, our victories, our crowds, and we forget it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about what he's doing. Johnny and I were picking out songs last night for the worship set today. And I just default to like 1996. It's incredible. There's a Scott Underwood Wood song from Vineyard Cafe back then. And it's just the, the choruses. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. I mean, that is one of the best choruses, and it's one of the best ones to go through the book of John, because here we have John the Baptist saying, hey, guys, eyes off me, eyes off us, eyes on Jesus, all right? We've got to point to Jesus, all right? Anything good that we've got going on in our ministry, it's because of Jesus, all right? And then we have John's pattern of ministry in verse 28, where he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Okay. And so he's essentially uh, reminding his disciples from chapter one, you know, that guys, it never was going to be about me. I came in this ministry to never have the end of, I've got my own TV channel. I'm just being heard around the world. You know, I'm on all sorts of magazines and I've got my own Twitter feed and Instagram and just everyone's listening to every update that I do every 20 seconds, you know, like that was never what this was supposed to be about. Okay. And I told you that from the beginning, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the savior. I'm not the Messiah. There's someone who's coming after me. John chapter one, it says he who is coming after me is preferred before me. He created me. He created us. So while we think that we were first, we actually were last. He was first. Okay. Um, and so there's this great pattern set out that he, he knows in his ministry, he was a sent one. Okay. I was sent to go and proclaim this. I was sent before him. And that is something that's key in ministry. John knows that all ministers, you know, we've got to be sent. We've got to have this recognition of people around us who are saying, man, here's your gifting. Here's your calling. I want to develop this in you. And I want to put you in this place. There's really not a place in this church for self-appointed apostles. Okay. Because whenever that happens, there comes pride, there comes division, there's a lack of humility, there's a lack of submission. That doesn't mean that you can't just take the initiative and clean the bathroom or straighten chairs or show up early and greet people. It's not what I'm talking about. People want to be leaders, and so they just come and they begin to shove their way around like a bull in a china shop, right? And, uh, and John knew just as well as the rest of the New Testament, you know what? There's a sending that's got to happen. There's recognition of gifts, and then we say, hey, it is so obvious that this is a calling on your life. We want to tend that in you. We want to develop that in you. And we want to put you in this place that God has called you to. We're ambassadors in the scriptures. We are sent ones. An unsent ambassador showing up to an embassy is going to be a laughing stock of that place, right? You might have a briefcase and a three-piece suit, but when you show up to the Brazilian consulate in Manhattan and you say, I'm here. And they say, well, what are you here for? And you're like, I'm an ambassador, you know? And they're like, you're not on the roster. Well, I mean, no one sent me, you know, I just, 
yo habla Portuguese, you know. And it's like, that's half Spanish, half Portuguese, and the only Portuguese word was the word Portuguese when you used it. So I don't think that that counts, all right? Uh, you would be the laughing stock, and you would be asked uh, to leave. But something that we see this sent one do is reflect all glory, all praise, all attention to Jesus all the time. That's something that every minister's got to do. One thing that a minister needs to do is paint themselves out of a job. All right? It's not about us. It's not about how long can I fill the pulpit here, or how long can I be a worship leader here, or be a children's ministry director, or whatever it might be. Head custodians, we love you. But it's about raising up disciples who can do our job so we can go and we can just keep you know, multiplying the kingdom of God, or we send them out, all right? It's kind of like in the military. In the military, you're supposed to teach all of your subordinates how to do your job so that if you're taken out in combat, they fill that role and the the battle keeps going, all right? In a similar way and not so similar way, John the Baptist is like, guys, I've painted myself out of a job. My time here is done because he has come. And it won't be that long before he's thrown in prison, John the Baptist, and martyred. Martin Luther, you guys know him, that 16th century reformer, he once said, God created the world out of nothing. And when I realize that I am nothing, perhaps God can create something out of me too. And so in John the Baptist, we have a few just helpful things for those of us that are called into ministry, which remember was every single one of us. It's just different roles it's different places, it's different gifts, it's different talents. And here's some helpful things to help with that. Here's some marks of the calling into ministry that we can glean from John the Baptist, all right? Number one, that there is a deep-rooted, all-consuming desire for the work, all right? There is a deep burning for that ministry that God has called you to, all right? Um, I like what Josh Bryant says. If you know him, he's the Calvary Burns pastor, longtime friend of mine. And, uh, and he's a farrier. He shoes horses. He does day work cowboying. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of ministry life together. We've been through hard things. We've had a lot of hard phone calls, people in the church. There's a lot of hurt that happens. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of encouragement. There's division that happens in the church. And we work through that with each other. And, you know, we both, there's times where we're just like, man, I don't know, man, maybe I need to turn in my letter of resignation, you know, or maybe, maybe I'll just go and ride fences or something. And both, and John and uh, Josh and I both say this, that it's too bad I've been ruined. And he says it more burns like, you know, like ruined or ruined, right? I've been ruined. What do you mean you've been ruined? He's like, man, I have tasted of the calling of God on my life. What else can I do but preach to the world about Jesus. And I already know that God has set up and ordained the church, the gathering of ourselves together. And so as a Christian, whether I'm, you know, a boom lift operator on an electrical truck or whether I'm an oil rig driller or I'm a mechanic or whether I'm a a cowboy or whether I'm a librarian, whatever, I know that I'm called to be a part of a local church body. And there in the local church body, I've been given gifts to edify that body. Well, here are my gifts, and now I use them to edify one another. And before you know it, man, I serve and I'm faithful, and I can't help but be faithful because I'm ruined. Next thing you know, I'm preaching from the pulpit, and oh no, here I am again. I'm ruined, right? And that we would have that same thing in whatever sphere of ministry God's calling you in. 
you're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he's called you to do. And there is a deep-seated, all-consuming burning to do what you've been called. And John the Baptist clearly demonstrated that during his time here, he was all in, wasn't he? All in as a prophet, declaring the, the kingdom of God, declaring the one to come all the way to the point of death when he confronts Herod and his adulterous affair with his sister-in-law. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said that if there was any student in his uh, college, his Bible college, and this is written in lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon, they were now in his college, but he said, you know what, students, if you could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king in the name of heaven and earth, just go your way. You are not the man in whom dwells the spirit of God in its fullness. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit, but that for which his inmost soul pants. And maybe for whatever role you're called, I'm like, I don't know my inward soul pants to clean these bathrooms really sparkly around the church every week. Well, pray for that. Whatever call God's put on your life, Lord, don't let it just be a weekend. Let me think throughout the week on how I can make it better, how I can bless people more in this way, how we can be more effective. You know, um, just, I'm just thinking about this role all the time and, and growing in it. This is from Alistair Begg, some of these marks of calling. There's an evidence of an ability in that realm of ministry that you're feeling called. That's why elders and bishops who bring the word of God and protect the word of God, Timothy is told that they need to be able to teach. Okay, And if you're not able to teach, even if there's been some pouring into you and we're trying to work that in you, if it's just like, you know, I'm just not a teacher, that's okay. Maybe you're called to be a deacon instead. This is to some of you men out there. I'm not really a preacher or a teacher, but I can, I can serve and I can really lead in service, all right? Um, whatever it is, whatever capacity, maybe God's tugging on your heart today, is there like an ability and maybe a gifting and, and a sweet aroma whenever you do that task? Um, whenever you do it, it's a blessing to others. With those giftings, there needs to be an occur- a concurrence of spiritually qualified men and women around you who would say, amen to this calling on your life. We see it. There's a lot of people that, you know, maybe you're like, man, I would love to just be up here. I see the evidence. Of-. Okay. But it's more like, I see the evidence of my life. Is it life? Uh, uh, okay, and it's like, hey, we love you. I don't know how to put this, but remember Rory's sermon a few weeks, weeks back about like, totally can tell that this is the calling on your life. I don't really know that that's the calling. There's a need for someone to scrape dead animals up in the neighborhood off the, off the streets. And the singing there would be really, okay, Lindsay rebuked me. Gradual training of uh, gradual train of circumstances, pointing out the means and the time and the place of actually entering that work. In other words, you just see the hand of the Lord on this person's life, uh, so that they, man, boom, here you are. You fall into this sphere of ministry, and you just see the hand of the Lord taking you there. All right. But the bottom line to it all is Romans chapter ten, verses fourteen and fifteen. How then shall they call on him whom they've never heard and whom they've never believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they've never heard? And how shall they hear 
without a preacher. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so really ultimately the only bottom line is open up your mouth and preach the gospel to people. Like it doesn't have to be the most eloquent thing in the world. Open up that mouth, preach the gospel, serve one another, have the goal to edify the church and glorify Christ in the world. We're going to wrap it up here with John the Baptist's pleasure in ministry. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And so John the Baptist says, essentially, guys, I'm like the best man at a wedding. And the best man's job is to make sure that the wedding goes off without a hitch. We want to make sure there's no runaway bride situations, you know. We want to make sure that all the, you know, that the bride arrives on the wedding day and that the groom is there, that they're able to meet and connect. That when the pastor does that lame thing of like, does anybody here have any th- reason why the two shall not be joined together? It's like, probably should have spoke up at a different point in time, not at the wedding. Because if you stand up, the, the best man's going to take you down, is what John the Baptist is saying, all right? He says, my joy is fulfilled when I see the bride united with the groom. And that's a New Testament picture, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus is the groom and we, the church, are the bride. And Paul had the same heart as John the Baptist when he said, my heart is to present the church to the groom as a chaste virgin, someone who's not been deceived by the trickery of Satan. Man, as best men and ambassadors, we just want the bride to come together with the groom and our joy would be fulfilled. All right. Um, And then verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. What a beautiful short verse. Does that seem like a verse that's memorizable to you guys? Memorizable. New word of the day. Write it down. Okay. Does that seem like a ver- easy to memorize, but also applicable to nearly every area in our life? Okay. John the Baptist, man, he's in a different position. He's like got this role that's Old Testament prophetic in nature. He was to make way the the paths of the messiah and get people to the messiah that's huge and this huge evangelist prophet is able to say you know what guys more of jesus less of me more of jesus less of me he must increase and you know what you might not be john the baptist but is this the cry of your heart 2020 christian Is this the cry of your Monday? Is this the cry of your Saturday afternoons? He must increase and I must decrease. He will increase. You read the prophecies. He will increase as the Isaiah prophet says of the increase of his government. There will be no end as Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream goes. There will be a rock cut without hands that will come and pulverize any false God that this world could ever offer and any kingdom that thinks it's strong in this world. When Jesus comes, he's going to come and he's going to crush 
anything that thinks they're bigger than Jesus. And that rock will then become a mountain that will cover the whole world. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is supreme. He will increase. Whether you want him to or not, he must increase and he will increase. So I'd get on that train if I were you. Everything in my life, let it reflect that Jesus is increasing. But then also, I myself, my pride, my ego, my dreams, my desires that are centered on me, my pleasure, my reputation, man, it's all right if it gets lower and lower and lower. I remember listening to the Portland preacher and Bible professor Art Azurdio at, um, at a conference in Portland years ago. And he was asked one year, hey, how big is your church in Portland? And his answer to how big is your church in Portland, he must increase, I must decrease. I think of that all the time. Hey, how big is your Prineville church? I'm like, 522? No, I'm kidding. We're not 522. You guys are like, where does he get that math? I mean, we're having lots of babies around here, okay? 75? You know, I don't know. But before I start throwing numbers out, I'm always like, hey, as you begin to present this figure, he must increase, I must decrease. Let his name be made great. Let his fame be made great. I have no greater joy than that Jesus' name increases. It takes, it's been said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And I think John the Baptist did a good job. He did a good job, didn't he? There's a lot to learn from that. We're going to have the worship team come back up. As we do, as they do come up, we're going to kind of uh, come through the latter part of the chapter here. More of a read in it. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he's contrasting John the Baptist, born of a man and a woman, right? Uh, earthly, right? And he, he only can speak to a level that's really earthly, okay? Uh, but he points to Jesus, the Son of God, coming, and he's going to have a message heard straight from the lips of the Father, Verse 32, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony is certified that he is true. Uh, this spring, we had the youth group out here, and we were playing telephone. You guys know that game? I mean, it is amazing how middle schoolers can get a simple little, even Disney song phrase, like just, just around the river bend, okay? Go. You know, and then all the way it's like, Got to go to Ben to get some groceries, you know, and you're like, you know, man, 10 kids really distorts a message, right? There was no telephone game when it comes to Jesus coming and speaking the message of the gospel. It was heard directly from the father and it was the good pleasure of the son to come and make it known. But no one on the earth was receiving that testimony in verse 33. When we do receive his testimony, we put our stamp on it that God is true. When we do not receive the testimony, we make God a liar. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then we have in verse 36 almost a repeat 
of verse 15 and verse 16, and I think even verse 18. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In this context, the word believe means to obey. And all throughout the New Testament, when you see people get saved, it speaks of them obeying the gospel, believing and obeying the gospel. Wherever there is belief, there is obedience, all right? Uh, Belief leads us to obedience, And so where there are people that say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I assent to the truth of the Bible, but their life does not have obedience lived out to the callings of the Lord, the holiness of God, the mission of God, the ecclesiology within a church of God, then there's something that should be a check in our lives. They may believe or assent to something about God, but their hearts have never given themselves over to not only be their savior, but to be their Lord, where we obey. Obey our Lord. Those who believe and obey have everlasting, eternal life, everlasting. But the contrast is those that don't believe, they don't obey Jesus. There will be death there, and there will be woe. There will be pain. There will be hurt. And it will actually dwell upon that individual. That was the message of John the Baptist. Some of the last that we're going to hear from John the Baptist in the gospel. He's pointing people to Jesus. He is decreasing. Jesus is increasing. And John's preaching the gospel to his own disciples. I know that you're my disciples, but if you don't believe and obey Jesus, the wrath of God will be upon you. You're a religious person. You hang out with a religious person. But if you're not going to believe in Jesus... It will not be well with you. Can't you just hear John the Baptist say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. You guys go ahead and stand with me. Jesus, amen. amen. Points to Jesus. We want to point people to Jesus in this church. That is our aim. That is our mission. Pointing people to Jesus the same way John the Baptist did. Man, we want to decrease and we want Christ and his fame and his message to be known throughout the whole earth we want to do what john the baptist did in that pointing people to jesus preach the gospel preach the necessity of believing on the lord jesus preach the necessity that belief is coupled with obedience doesn't mean we're going to be perfect doesn't mean we're not going to fail and falter and stumble and fumble and bumble but we will have an inward conviction to daily be conformed into the image of Christ, to daily be sanctified, to daily crucify the old man, to deny ourselves, to deny our flesh, to say yes to Christ, to say no to self. 
We want everything in our living and breathing and waking and sleeping, recreating, hobbies, job and career, purchases, sellings. We want it all to be about Jesus, the furtherance of his name. 